Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. Our guest today was a producer on the CBS show Zoo, CW's The Messengers, and NBC's Revolution. Previous to that, he was on staff for Fox's hit show Fringe and also wrote the tiny comic book for that series. His career began at Bad Robot, where he worked as J.J. Abrams' assistant on Lost, Cloverfield, and Star Trek. He is currently a supervising producer on the Fox series APB, which premieres next year. Uh, welcome to the show, Matt Pitts. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. Okay, um, we always like to begin the show with how you got your start in the industry. What inspired it? What sort of training or preparation did you undergo? Uh, how did this all start for you? I mean, should I go back to when I was 14 or should I talk about yeah, when I no, was in Los Angeles? It, it, no, absolutely. When you were 14, when you first became interested in, in working in the industry, mm-hmm. you know, what TV show did you right. see? What did well, you say? I it, want to do that. It's funny because when I was... I'll date myself a little bit, but when I was 14 is when Pulp Fiction came out. Mm-hmm. And I had, I, you know, I 13 or 14, I couldn't drive yet and I couldn't go to the movies. You know, I had to ask my mother for a ride and, and Pulp Fiction came out and it was a little controversial. And I said, oh, can I go to the movie to see Pulp Fiction? She's like, no, you're not going to see that movie. <laughs> um, so instead I asked to go to Barnes & Noble and, you know, when I went to Barnes & Noble, the first section I would always go to was the film and television section. Um, and Pulp Fiction was like one of the first times like a screenplay was published as a book mm. and that you could you could buy it. And so I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I, I said to my mother, I'm like, I'm going to get this. And she's like, okay. Uh, and it was the first time that I saw like interior, exterior, you know, slug lines. It was the first time I saw action. The dialogue was just obviously amazing. And I think it was probably the first script I ever laid eyes on. And from that moment on, I was like, I need to, I need to do this. And so I started writing my own ripoff versions of uh, Pulp Fiction, um, which I got 10, 15 pages in and realized I didn't know how to tell a story and then stopped and started over again multiple times. So, I, you know, I, that was really for writing. That's when that started. And that was, you know, in high school, I was just obsessed with movies I was known as the movie guy. I was like the people called me Dawson because I was like the Dawson Leary of of you know my class. Um, and it was probably junior year in high school that uh, Goodwill Hunting came out. And you know more so than Goodwill Hunting, the the movie itself was the story about two young Boston guys who wrote this movie and were in it. And you know. Gonna, it was it was their dream and they're living their dream and and you know that story was so uh, profound and so many young creative people especially in Boston which is not necessarily known for its creativity it's known for sports and, and politics and and history and it's so to hear that story I was just like extremely inspired um, and then when they won the you know the Oscar for best screenplay. You know, I remember exactly where I was. My eyes welled up with tears. I was crying watching these guys because I was so happy for them, but also happy for myself in a way. It's like I know now what I want to do. Mm-hmm. There's only one thing for me, and it is screenwriting. And I'm going to, you know, do some version of whether it's at that moment, t- television writing was not on my radar. It was features. I'm like, I'm going to write movies with Robin Williams in it that make people feel the way I felt. Right. And so that was my, my, my goal. And, but coming out of, you know, high school, I was kind of a homebody. Uh, you know, I come from an Irish Catholic family and 
I didn't want to go far away. Like I didn't want to go to the USC's or the NYU. And to be honest, I didn't really have the grades. I wasn't the best student in the world. Um, I was a, very much a daydreamer. And and I, I went to a school, St. Anselm College, and I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to read a lot, and I'm going to I'm going to study. Uh, I'm going to be an English major. And throughout that, I kind of wanted to be an English teacher. Um, and but there was always that thing of I want to make movies. I want to make movies. I want to write movies. Um, and so when I graduated from St. Anselm College, I enrolled in a, a program at Emerson College, uh, a one-year program um, for, for screenwriting, where I met uh, this teacher who's still a very close friend, his name Scott Thompson. Um, really inspired me. He was a fantastic teacher. Um, helped me work throughout the whole thing. You work on one screenplay. And um, so I worked on this. It was, you know, shocker, a, uh, a family drama, Irish Catholic, you know, it was I. I was heavily influenced by Ed Burns movies. Right. I was just thinking that. And I mean, like I've seen Brothers McMullen. I can't even tell you. I listen to Ed Burns on interviews on podcasts mm-hmm. all the time, and I just love, I just love his style, um, his characters because I know all those characters. Uh, they're my family, um, and so that's what I did. And I wrote this small little movie. And the whole thing was at the end of the program at graduation, they announced the award for best screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was really hoping I would get it. And my parents came. And, you know, up until this point, my parents knew that I always wanted to write. They didn't know what it looked like. The idea of moving me moving to Los Angeles was like, whoa. Um, they just didn't, you know, like anything, they just didn't understand the world of, you know, filmmaking and can you making a living out of it? Like no one we knew had done it before. All you right, hear is right. it's far away and it's hard. Right. Um, Which is both true. <laughs> and so when my name was announced at graduation as uh, winning this uh, Best Screenplay Award, it was really great in the sense that my parents were like, I remember my dad saying, oh, I'd like to read it. Mm-hmm. You know, which is like the best feeling ever for your parents to to read it. My dad actually like brought it into work. He's a general manager at a restaurant in Quincy um, called the Common Market, and it's like some of those waitresses had read it on their <laughs> lunch break, and it was like it was really kind of fun, and it was just a, it was a great feeling to have a completed piece of material. Right. And I knew then that I had to move out to Los Angeles, but I still was very scared, and I still did not. It was so far, like three thousand miles away. I don't know anyone there. And, you know, one of the things I did was, I mean, not on my own, but like I had moved out. My parents had converted my bedroom to a a living room or a a man cave down in the basement. And so I moved back in with my parents and I, I didn't have a bedroom. I was on the couch. And it was like one of those things where it's like, okay, well, I, I have no choice now, but to move to Los Angeles. And I had been a, a burger cook in this place in South Boston mm-hmm. for 12 years and that was kind of my job and it was you know no one really wants to be a burger cook for <laughs> for 12 <laughs> years um, and so I was in that position and uh, you know then I, I this real quick funny story is I had this book that was um, I think it was called like how they created it and it was each page dedicated to a different uh, writer who created a television show and I was excited by Josh Schwartz's. Mm. Um, I was like, holy right. cow, I love the OC. Um, and he created that when he was 27, and I was 26 And when I was reading it. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to get out there, and he's the youngest guy who ever created a show. I'm going to see if I can do it in the next year, right, right, right. which is you know, crazy. But I showed it to my grandmother. This is a few months before I moved out. And my grandmother was an avid, avid, avid television watcher. She was obsessed. She had box sets of everything. 
And one of the things she loved was Alias. And she, she grabbed the book from me and she said, you should look at this guy. And it was J.J. Abrams. And I had never heard of him before. I didn't watch Alias. Right. And it was funny that I read about him. I'm like, oh, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I didn't know much about him. And I didn't watch Alias. But a week before I was supposed to move out, my grandmother died. And, and it, was, it was another thing that I was like, okay, maybe I won't go. And even my grandfather had said to me, he's like, you know, I don't really want you to go. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so there was all these things. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't go. Maybe I shouldn't go. And then someone had said to me, I don't know who, probably my brother. It's like, if you don't go now, you're never going to go. So I packed up my Jeep and I went. And I came out here and it was, you know, a week to get out here. I know I spent $400 on gas <laughs> and I stopped in Vegas and I'm not really a big gambler, but yeah. I, I played blackjack and I had, t- I used 40 bucks. I made 400 and I just stopped. And my buddy who drove up me, he's like, keep going, keep going. You're hot. I'm like, no, I just drove cross country for free. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, let's just, let's just quit while we're ahead and, you know, do the rest of the four hours to Los Angeles. Um, so my buddy who I came out here with, he actually just was along for the ride. He flew back. Um, and I was out here kind of alone. I didn't know anyone. And I had, had got the email address of a guy who worked on CSI Miami, um, who was originally from Boston. I emailed him. I said, Hey, you know, I'd like to meet, talk. Um, I need a job. If there's any job opportunities. And he ended up getting me a job interview at Technicolor Complete Post. Hmm. Um, packing boxes overnight. Sure. Not the most desirable job, but I was, you know, I needed it. So I went and interviewed with this woman um, and, you know, it was a great interview and I didn't hear anything. And I was like, wow, like Los Angeles, you know, it must be really hard here if, you know, (laughs) I didn't get the job packing boxes overnight. And it was about a week later and I get a phone call from a producer on Alias. His name was Steve Judge and he he was dating the girl who interviewed me. Hmm. And he said, you know, I'd love it if you'd come in an interview. And I was like, oh, wow, I've never... It was for a post-PA position. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a post-PA was. Right. Um, but I went and I interviewed. I asked him about it, you know, everything that I would do. He's like, you know, mainly your j- job is to dub and distro. And I was like, oh, yeah, great. I didn't know what <laughs> dub and distro meant. Um, I was that green. Right. Um, but I said, yeah, and I actually I got the job. And it was only for the back half of the season. So it was for like episodes 12 to 20 or, or whatever it was because their PA had gone over to uh, another show. So I did that job and one of the things was Lost was right next door to Alias. And it was season two. And I, like everyone, was obsessed with Lost. So I wanted to go over there. And I wanted to see what it was like. And I, I got to know the PA over there. And he... You know, we became friends and he said, you know, I'm getting promoted to writer's assistant. You should apply for my, my job. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, what, you know, what does a writer's PA do, you know? And, and he just kind of ran. He's like, you get coffee, you know, you fill, mm-hmm. the, you fill the kitchen. He's like, it's really not that bad. And I was like, oh, great. And so I, I went and I applied and I interviewed with Carlton. I interviewed with Carlton on the, the day of the season two finale. Um, so I was all excited. I was like, wow, I get to be in the writer's room. You know, I get to meet Carlton. And then that night I'll get to watch the season two finale. Um, and I was really excited. And, you know, my interview with Carlton was really funny because Carlton is a big, um, Boston fan. You know, he went to Harvard. He's a Red Sox fan. And I, I don't necessarily, 
I don't speak sports well, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but being from Boston. Right, right. And so right away, Carlton was like, oh, you're from Boston, the Red Sox. And I just was like, yeah. And I was like, no, ma. <laughs> and that's the only Red Sox player I knew. And right. for some reason, I was able to kind of BS my way around the fact that I was this big sports fan when I didn't know anything about the Red Sox. That's funny. And we hit it off and, and Carlton hired me. And it was, it was, I've never been so happy. Like I got the phone call. I again cried. There's a running theme of crying. Um, I may cry in a half hour. Um, But, you know, I was just so happy. And the job didn't start for a month. So it was funny as I went back to Boston and I went to that burger cook job and I worked for a month as a burger cook knowing that I had lost coming up. Which is really funny, and it was, you know, some people were like, oh, I guess L.A. didn't work out for you. I was right, like, well, right. no, it did. I'm going back, and I got a really cool job. Um, and so, yeah, and then I worked on, on Lost, and, and that was wonderful. I mean, like, a lot, it was see, the beginning of season three. Um, the writers were amazing. They're, they're just so talented. I mean, they've all gone on to do amazing things. Getting to work with Damon and just see his process was mm-hmm. everything. I mean, I, I wasn't in the room. I, I was delivering coffees. I still can remember what people drank <laughs> for, for coffee orders, right. you know. Um, and, and so it was, it was really great, but I, I, it was hard. And I was on it for three months, and JJ had two assistants, uh, Athena and Sean. And they had both been promoted to do other things. And he had, JJ had gone through interview processes to hire a first assistant. And he did, this great guy, Dave Baranoff. And he did not want to go, he did not want to interview for a second assistant. He just asked Athena and Sean, like, is there anyone that you guys would recommend for an assistant? And they both said, you should grab Matt Pitts out. He's the writer's PA. And so, you know, they came out and they said, oh, do you want to work with JJ? And I said, no. What? And I said no because I was, I, I knew there was a television trajectory mm-hmm. of, okay, I am a writer's PA. That's true. Next season, I could be a writer's assistant. Mm-hmm. Maybe they will give me a freelance. I will someday write on Lost if I just stay here. Mm-hmm. And so that was my mentality. And they said, okay. And then it was a day or two later, um, Sean had stopped me on the, the causeway in between um, the lot and the ABC building and said, why did you say no? <laughs> He's like, and then he just kind of, he just, he goes, he laid out, he goes, this is what I've been doing for JJ the last two years. And he just went through this, these great experiences. Um, they worked on Mission uh, 3 together. And he just talked about JJ as a great guy, a great teacher, you know, very giving, how much I'll learn. Learn about writing, but also just, you know, how things work out here, like working with... Agents, managers, production company, pitching to networks, all of this stuff, TV and film. I mean, Bad Robot does so much stuff. So mm-hmm. he's like, you, you'd have access to that. And I said, okay. I go, I'm going to do it. And then they literally just brought me into JJ's office. And I'd only met him once, and that was giving him a cappuccino. So I was really nervous. I was sweating. And he said, do you want to do this? And I said, yeah. And he held out his hand. And he goes, then let's do this. And from that point on, I was two years as his assistant and it was it was wonderful it was great it was hard to you know tell Damon and, and Carlton that I was leaving but you know they were very gracious and, and Damon you know I still look at every now and then wrote me this like amazing email it's like you have to do this this is a great opportunity for you you know go with God you know that's amazing it was really fun they're really fun um, and then you know just the with the first job 
to do with JJ was he directed an episode of The Office um, in season three. It was called Cocktails. So that was my first time as his assistant on set doing something. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was The Office at its prime. So (laughs) I got to be there for five days in The Office with all of those actors and the writers and it was it was so fun i was a total fan now keep in mind i think i was i was out here nine months at that point (laughs) so i was so green and nervous and steve carell said hi and i think i ignored him and ran away and like i just you know i didn't talk to him i was really scared i just kind of kept you know uh just trying to check in with jj make sure he was happy and he was very easy guy to be an assistant to um I mean, back then, Bad Robot was, it was really, it was very small. Uh, it was, it was really, five, I was one of five people because he hadn't really built up the television and the, in the, in the film division yet. Now right. it's just an, enormous with, I think, you know, at one point there's over a hundred people working in various things there. It's, it's a really fun place to go into, but it was really small when I was there. And then one of the things that was fun is I got to see JJ and Matt Reeves and Drew Goddard develop, um, Cloverfield together Hmm. and so that was fun but also Star Trek was being written and that was fun and it was uh, great to see them um, start from scratch really start with the idea start with someone saying oh it should be Romulans and really just build from that and uh, you know I got to be a part of it and I I just I mean I didn't do much I I carried JJ's bag and brought him Diet Cokes and (laughs) um, uh, but it was it was great to be a sponge well, you had mentioned before we started recording something that I thought was super helpful, super informative, in that you said, I, I'm paraphrasing here, mm-hmm. but you said something like, accept all the opportunities or something like that, basically. Oh, right, yeah. It was, it was the whole thing about, I, when you come out to L.A., right. you don't want to take a job packing boxes overnight. Right. Uh, I didn't want to do it. That's that's not appealing. <laughs> <laughs> that's not why but, you drove. Across but there. like, I just needed a job. I only had X amount of dollars that was going to last me X amount of <laughs> days, <Right>. um, <laughs> not months. And and so because I said yes to that job at Technicolor Complete Post, you know, as I just kind of laid out, there was this domino effect mm-hmm. of very fortunate events that happened from alias to lost to bad robot and you know and and it just keeps going you know just from from meeting my wife and now we have two kids like and and you know now up to apb it's like it all came from saying yes to a job i didn't want to do right packing boxes you packing boxes and it's it's a lot of people come out here and they're like i want to be a writer it's it's, which is great you know you have to start somewhere Mm -hmm. and it's great to just be in anything in production Anything that will you will learn because you will learn even if you do, you don't you you may not be learning about writing or the the craft or whatever but you're learning about actors you're learning about lighting you're learning about all of these things that go into it even mm-hmm. just being in a mailroom or delivering scripts to someone at four o'clock in the morning five o'clock in the morning it's like it's you know the whole thing like this is how you make your bones. Um, and it's you know it's it's made all the difference in my life saying yes to that. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and talking about moving out to LA, we were talking about earlier as well. It's important for feature writers, but you can sort of get 
still, you can still get read and you mm -hmm. can still sell a screenplay not living in LA, although it's much harder because you can't take meetings. So, you know, or you come out periodically to take all of your meetings in a two week span and go back. But it can be done. But as a TV writer, that's really not the case. Um, not just for networking. Mm -hmm. Like, again, if you had a job packing boxes in Boston, there's no way you would have no, yeah. run into this, this chain of events. But also uh, in terms of even if a show, uh, like, is APB shot in Detroit? It's yeah. in Chicago. Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, it's still your writer's room is... We're here. Here. We're, in, here. We're in Burbank. Right. And mm -hmm. that's the thing. Like, all the Chicago Fire, uh, you know, the yeah. writers are here. And you know, from wherever, they, they work out here. And so you sort of have to be here if you want to work in television. Absolutely. I don't know. I, I don't, you know... No, the good, I was going to say The Good Wife, but I think The Good Wife writers are here. I, I don't know of any New York writers' rooms. I mean, I'm just speaking for drama. Yeah. I don't know comedy that Back well. Back in the day, I think, like, Sopranos was out there, and I think right. 30 Rock was out there. But that's about right. it. Right, and then Rescue Me was, was there, but I think that was just Dennis, Larry, Peter Toland, and, and another guy, you know? Right. Uh, right. So they didn't really have a writers' room. Um, you you kind of got to be here. Um, I, I, I learned that, and now I never thought that I would be here after 10 years, you know, but um, California is now my home, you know, and if I want to keep working in television, I kind of have to stay here. And even if I just switch to features, to be honest, um, accessibility is a sure. big thing. Taking meetings. Um, my manager, Adam Colburner, has a lot of very successful clients that live elsewhere. They do live in New York and other, other places. And that's great. And they can, if they can do that, awesome. And who's to say in 10 years I may change my tune and I may be in New York or Boston and be doing something else. But right now, this is where it is, you know. And it's, it took me a long time to, to come to terms with that. Right. Even right up until this year, my wife and I are like, well, we could go back. We could maybe make a run at this in New York or Boston or whatever, but I think now, you know, raising kids out here too, one of the things I love about California in general is just like, there's a lot of resources for creativity mm -hmm. that do not exist other places. So whether it be writing, whether it be music, you know, comic book writing, like everything is here. You can get an internship, any entry level at anything you want to do creatively here, I can't say that about Boston. New York has obviously a lot as right, well. Right. And other places like Vancouver are starting to have their own little Hollywood mecca. But you have to be here. And I, I, I do like the energy is, uh, the creative energy here is, is very powerful. Um, and I don't think I'd want to leave that yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, something else I wanted to touch on is... Uh, and you touched on it before we started recording this as well, uh, social media. Um, we, you don't do it. No. Um, and you don't do it for actually a different reason than a lot of other people I know that don't do it as well. Don't do it. Um, speaking of, uh, but we trans transitioned into that rationale in that uh, when you were on, was it Bad Robot and Facebook? It was, was Fringe. Was? Fringe. Yeah. And Facebook. Um, which I thought was interesting because you had mentioned that after you quit Facebook, you finished a script. Yeah, no, it was Facebook to me was a time suck. Um, there's only so many hours in the day. And if you have a family, there's less hours right. in the day to do, to do work. So your time's precious. Um, and Facebook for me, you know, when I was a, I was a writer's assistant on 
fringe and there was three of us so we wouldn't always be in the room so i should be using that time to write material um i wasn't i was like i was on facebook i was looking at what college friends were doing and <laughs> I, I was spending hours i was like what's this ex-girlfriend doing you know it was it was a total waste of time and my wife and i was the same way because you know and we were like why do we why do we have facebook um and then one day we just got rid of it and it was the best thing ever. And so I, I remember going in, and that's when I, I, I wrote a script. I wrote a feature. I actually was Spring Break Zombie Cruise. Right. Um, I, I wrote it fairly quickly, and I, you know, I went back and forth with my manager. We did, we did like 12 drafts. Wow. And I never would have been able to do that. I, I, I never would have finished if I had Facebook, because right. I would have been um, you know, stalking people in Boston. <laughs> right, every half page. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I need. I can't figure out this beat here. Right. Why don't I find the answer on Facebook? Yeah, exactly. Which, <laughs> which the answer's not there. Right, right. <laughs> um, and so I didn't, you know, and Twitter was a little harder to get rid of because I felt like I got my news from Twitter. Oh. Um, you know, I followed all like the deadline and like WeHo Daily when I lived in West Hollywood. To, and, but ultimately, there was a level of accessibility that I wasn't entirely comfortable with. Um, that's just, it's, it's kind of the nature of this business that people aren't always gonna like your writing. And, and that's fine. Um, but an episode of mine would air and then all of a sudden, people would just be writing to me what they didn't like about it. Or what they did like about it, which right. is very flattering. Or some people would just be just angry. And, <laughs> and there's different ways, people have different ways of, there's some writers who like, fight back right um one thing i've learned is to never go to the nikki fink uh or deadline comments section oh yeah they're just, they're just so angry you yeah. know and it's just that there's always going to be haters and i just you know i wasn't comfortable with the level of accessibility and i was like i'm just gonna get rid of twitter and i i don't miss it really right. to be honest uh, i don't have anything to say like if i watch if i finish the night of what am I going to be like? Oh my God, the night of! Like, like who cares what I have to say about the night of, <laughs> you right, know, right. Or, or whatever? Um, and it just—I feel again like there's other things to be doing for me personally. Right. Um, there's, and we discussed it before. Um, there are jobs that you would get based on not so much television writing, but novels and young adult novels. Mm -hmm. When you go to a publisher they want to see your first couple chapters and how many followers you right. have on Twitter. Absolutely. Um, they want to know that there is a market for, you know, the material and you as a writer. So in some sense, yes, that's, that's very important. And who knows? And I could be eating my own words in a year if I have my, my next young adult novel that I have not written yet or right. thought of, um, I may be like trying to get, I may come back on your podcast and be like, will you guys, <laughs> people follow me? Because right. I really want this published. Uh, right. Um, there's pros and cons. For me, it's just a personal decision. Right. Well, and it's, we were also talking about maybe you'll switch to comedy because comedy yeah. writers have gotten jobs and sold series. Series based. Oh, based absolutely. On a Twitter absolutely. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. Even like Reddit, people who are on mm -hmm. Reddit pitching ideas. I know Colburner like grabbed up some, some uh, script or whatever based on some Reddit pitch from someone. There is a world where that works for, for sure. comedy writers, and they, they're great. And honestly, I remember when I was on Twitter, I, was, I would follow comedians. Because yeah. you want to be entertained. Sure, absolutely. You know, especially because it's so short. It doesn't take. It's not a huge. Oh, it's it's very estimate. small, and it's people, yeah. and it's and it's live. Like mm -hmm. it's it's commenting on the news. It's commenting on the Olympics. Right. Um, as they're happening. As they're happening, and you're yeah. writing these funny things, and it's like, oh my god, look what so and so said. This funny thing right. about the Olympics. 
So yeah, for comedy, for comedians, it's, Very it's timely, perfect. Yeah. I'm, I'm not that funny. And Cole Brenner, I mean, that guy turns over every stone. He's got a great client list, obviously, you mm-hmm. know. So he doesn't need to do that, but I'm just so amazed how he does do that. I love the guy, but yeah, he, I mean, he for crazy. him, you know, he's always like it's the it's all the story. Doesn't matter who's writing it. It's who has the the best story, who has the best take, and he Absolutely. works with writers. Like he's worked with me so much. I mean, even now, you know, I've had some level of success in television, but you know, we're going back and forth on a feature right now. And he's helping me with that. And hopefully at some point in the next couple of months, I'll finally have that done. Uh, but I, I, I think I'm smart enough to know that I don't know everything. Right. And when The Blacklist comes out or other stuff right. and Colburner has five clients on it, I would be foolish not to listen to things he has to say. When I, when I disagree with a note, um, I have to know where it's coming from. Sure. And but it, to be honest, that's one thing that television writing has helped me with, you know, on features is... You get notes on everything. You get notes on your story areas, your outlines, your scripts, you know, whatever, from the studio and the network. And they're, they're not giving suggestions. No, no right. they're, right. they're, they're, No, you're changing this. Right. And you can fight back a little bit, you know, and maybe make your point, And maybe they'll see it and maybe they won't. Ultimately, you need to address that note. Mm-hmm. And so that's helped a lot with, with feature writing. I had written a feature last year for the Discovery Channel. And um, it was it was this it was really fun idea. Um, there was this man named Tom Slick that existed in in Texas. Um, he was an oil tycoon named Slick, um, and he had so much. And this is all true. He was also a cryptozoologist who had so much money that he would fund these expeditions to hunt the Yeti and the Loch Ness monster and huh. all this. So Discovery approached me, um, and they they wanted to do like an Indiana Jones with Tom Slick. And each movie, instead of religious relics, would be Yeti or, or whatever. And so they, they hired me to write this Yeti movie. It was the, uh, one of the most fun experiences I've ever had. I mean, like, I'm writing a Yeti movie. <laughs> right, right. Like, there's nothing better. And this guy is like a cross between Tony Stark and um, Indiana Jones. Right. I mean, it was just, it was great. But, you know, my first round of notes was 20 pages single-spaced. Oh, um, and I had, like, you know, quick meltdown of sweats but the television training, I was like, all right. And it was, you know, it was World one of those things. Leads. I had a full-time job at the, uh, yeah, at the time um, working on a television show. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was going in at 6 in the morning and going through those notes until the room started at 10. And the television training helped so much. I knew how to address the notes. I knew the note behind the note. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew enough to say, hey, guys, I don't get this note. I didn't try to fix it on my own. I'm like, I just don't understand this guy. Can you please elaborate? Right. Um, and so that's, the television training has helped so much with that. It made it a such, much better experience. But going through three, three drafts, uh, you know, with notes back and forth, it's always a little jarring. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what other sort of things would you say that television training has sort of helped with? Is there anything else that stands out specifically in terms of your other writing, because I know you've written comics and features and other things. Well, the the biggest thing mm-hmm. is is pitching. Okay. Um, on Fringe, mm-hmm. I didn't say anything. I was the staff writer. Uh, I was a staff writer and story editor there, but also I just you know I was in a room with with high level people. Um, I think at one point in Fringe season four, there were five people in there who had been showrunners before. Oh, it was just a very it was it was top heavy and bottom heavy. There was like twelve people in that room. So I, I didn't talk. And I remember 
I wrote an episode uh, with a talented writer, Justin Doble. We wrote an episode called Wallflower. Um, we didn't even pitch our episode. We were the young guys in the room and one of the co-EPs pitched our episode to the boss mm. for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went and, and wrote it. So leaving Fringe, I was so nervous about pitching. I was very scared. It was, it was I, whatever my next job was, I knew I'd have to pitch and I knew I wasn't ready to do it. Um, and it ended up being Revolution. And one of the things that happened on Revolution was I met the best pitchers I've ever seen. Um, Trey Calloway um, is, a, is, a, is a fantastic pitcher. Paul Grelong is another one. And then there's a, a talented um, playwright, David Rambo. I would watch them perform their episodes. Um, a lot like what you... I'm a big Disney fanatic. Mm-hmm. And you hear these stories about like how Walt brought all the animators in and acted out Snow White. And with all of the different seven dwarfs, mm-hmm. mannerisms, he had everything acted out, and that's one of, that was his superpower, is that he could do that. Well, I've always wanted to do that. I, I just couldn't do it, but I got to watch the writers on Revolution act out their episodes, and they were amazing. And so going into... So I did, you know, I did, I, I, I wasn't good at it on Revolution. I tried. <laughs> I was never going to be those guys, but I always try to maybe have one thing I'm working on when I go on to an, another show. So I knew the next job after Revolution, the one thing I was going to work on was, was going to be pitching. And it happened to be Messengers with Trey. And it was, it was good. I remember I had to pitch um, one of my first episodes on that. And I got in to work. I wrote everything up on the board. I got in two hours early and I shut the door and I pitched it twice to nobody and I just walked through it and I had stolen some, some mannerisms that some of the other guys had done, <laughs> some of the tricks that they have. Um, and what are some of those tricks? Well, the funniest trick that comes to mind isn't really helpful. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> but your showrunner is always going to read ahead especially if you have all your stuff on the board. Mm. You don't want your showrunner to read ahead because you're not there yet. You right. haven't had the opportunity to pitch that moment. Sure. Okay, because you're telling a story. It's linear, you know? And so one thing that, that Paul Grelong would do is when Kripke would try to read ahead, Paul would walk in front of him and block <laughs> the board. But he would never miss a beat pitching. Right. It would, it would look like he was casually moving to act, you know, to act out his pitch. Right. He was really blocking the board. So that Kripke couldn't read it. And I was like, that's genius. Right. Because uh, on APB, I, we would go through it now. You know, like oh, the, your showrunner is always going to read ahead. And you just, you know, just w- wait for it, guys. I, I promise there is <laughs> right. a, something nice at the end of this. Um, so, you know, that's one of, one of those tricks. The other thing for me is I write a lot on the board. Um, for me, writing a lot on the board, I can almost, it's not that I'm reading off the board, but I can if I want to. Mm-hmm. And that makes me feel comfortable. Sure. So that I know that if I get nervous, and different people are, are, are different showrunners are hard to pitch to. Um, you know, they don't have poker faces. Um, so you know if someone, if something's not jiving, you know, you're getting, you know, with, with Kripke, it was really funny because we would joke about the stinky cheese face. Uh, he would, if he was not feeling something, right. there was a face you would get. And it was like, so if I was pitching and I got that face, I'd be broken. And it would be hard to continue mm-hmm. pitching because I'm like, oh, I know he doesn't like that, you know. Um, and so I like to write everything on the board. So if I do get a bad face, I can take a moment, 
and then look back at my next beat and almost start reading it and find my groove again. Gotcha. So I do that a lot. Um, and every show is different. Like APB, we don't pitch that much, to be honest. Uh, it's a procedural, um, which is a little bit different than writing on a, a, a genre serialized show. So there's a lot of plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so rather than pitching the plot, what works well for my showrunners is writing documents and writing Excel sheets and getting things in order uh, for them to see and respond to. So, you know, I'll do three, four, five Excel documents, get notes on each of them and hopefully make it better. And then once that Excel document is cleared, then I can go on to the next step, which would either be story area or outline, depending on the episode. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of the, um, the, the pitching is, it's, it's, it's tricky. I'm glad I don't have to do it on this because it is a thing that like scares me. Mm-hmm. But now that we don't do it on there, I, it's kind of fun. I mean, I like selling your episode, especially there's different episodes of television. Like I have ones that I was very passionate about that right. came from a, 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 a kernel of my idea and then grew. And then there are some that I was told you're going to write this. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, I can hopefully do both well, but those ones that are your babies, you know, I want to sell it. I want to pitch it, you know. Um, the, my first episode on Revolution, uh, Children's Crusade, uh, my wife was pregnant, and Kripke said, what do you want to write about? And I said, I really want to write about kids. Um, and he said, that's great. He's like, let's do it. Let's do it together. And it was probably my best day, and my favorite writer's room experience ever in my years was I was working with Eric and this very talented writer Monica Breen and we had small rooms we had a bigger staff but we broke into small rooms mm-hmm. so it was just the three of us in the room and Kripke had you were either going to tackle emotion or plot depending on you know kind of how it was going and we had talked a lot about the plot of the episode and we had nailed down kind of a structure and then Eric said he goes all right Pitts now you're not going to talk and Monica and I are going to tell you what it's like to be a parent and it was, they, they just started talking. I don't know if they planned it ahead of time or whatever, but they really laid in the emotion of the episode because I didn't have a kid yet, uh, but I was pregnant. So it was, right. they were telling me about the episode, but they were giving me these like life lessons. And I'll never forget it because Kripke said, he, he said, you will, you will never blow out birthday candles and make a wish for yourself again. And I literally started sobbing up. Like my eyes started welling and I was like, I cannot cry in front of Kripke. I was like, hold it together, hold it together. And, but I was really emotional and I, I didn't cry, thank God. Um, but it was, it was one of my favorite days ever in a, in a writer's room. And, uh, and you know, the episode uh, was, was a success. I, people really liked it. Um, and I was, it's probably one of the ones I'm most proud of. Either that or uh, Zoo's classic Sex, Lies, and Jellyfish. <laughs> I'm kidding. But uh, yeah, I loved Children's Crusade. I loved, I loved All Revolution. It was such a fun show. And that's something that we were also talking about earlier. Um, that you haven't really had that sort of bad experience, which is, I think is, is awesome because you hear stories. And very rarely do people go public with it, obviously, for political reasons and stuff. But right, right. I think that that's fantastic. Um, but there's also something that that goes into that as well, and you had mentioned that uh, uh, when you were working with other writers, being respectful of other people's ideas and pitches and things like that, which I think is, is super important. Um, but also there's 
sort of a, a correct way to sort of not correct people, but you know, mm-hmm. raise issue with somebody's pitch or idea. Right. Um, maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, f- for me, having my first experience be fringe or, or bad robot, um, I noticed that it starts with the top down. Mm-hmm. And one thing I noticed about JJ was he asked everyone for notes. Um, he asked me, I remember one time, he had just seen the first cut of the Cloverfield trailer. Mm-hmm. And he said, what do, you, what do you think? And I was like, oh my God, it's awesome. <laughs> and Because it, it was. Right. And then we were walking and he stopped and he said, look, he's like, I want you to tell me what you think and be honest always because there's a lot of directors out there who are surrounded by people who tell them yes all the time. And I don't want to be that director. Mm-hmm. He's like, so please feel free to always tell me what you think. And, and it was great. You know, and it was one of those things where everyone from the assistant to Tom Cruise could give a note and he would be respectful of it. And it trickled down because other, other showrunners, so then it was working on Fringe uh, with Pinkner and Wyman, who were also like extremely respectful. If there was a, even if there was a, I wouldn't say bad idea, but a not on the mark idea, you would be met with interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. I got to know that when they said interesting, <laughs> It meant they didn't like it. Right, right, right. But they had, again, like their superpower and a lot of these other people were, say, you, you pitch an idea, if they are not jiving with it, they'd be like, well, here, here's what I like about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and they would say something that was good about it. But let's think about it like this and either change the subject to get away from your pitch or, right. or, 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 or whatever. And I, I get quiet in a room a lot of times. I obviously talking as an upper level producer, you have to, to a degree, you know, run the room or talk more in the room, help guide conversation. Um, I get quiet a lot because I like to, I like to have a pitch that I nail. You know, I, I, I really want to get it right. right. <laughs> I don't want to pitch 10 ideas and pray that one of them lands. I would rather be quiet for an hour if need be um, and really come up with, a you know, something that, that lands. Right. I also want to... One of the most important things in a writer's room, and Jeff Pinkner is a master at this, is like to be a Michael Clayton, to be a fixer, because you're going to get stuck a lot. And getting stuck at like 9, 10 o'clock at night sucks. Um, and Because and you, you, you're not fresh. But I always want to have the idea that fixes the problem or turns it, turns it in, a, in a new direction that helps us get to the problem. Right. Um, we say all the time that there's no such thing as a bad idea. Um, because bad ideas do lead to good ideas. Sure. They, they really do. I heard it's like some funny story about Breaking Bad that someone's like, oh, about a, 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 someone's head on a tortoise. And then like, oh, that's crazy. Well, hold on, wait, wait a sec. Well, think about that for a second. Right, right. And then someone's like, well, what if they take the head off and it, it explodes? And it's like, whoa, that's crazy. That's, that's insane. Well, hold on. Let's, <laughs> let, let's think about that. And it's one of the most memorable moments in Breaking Absolutely. Bad that they do that. And I, I know that um, other people have, have said this before, but there was a, a, a phrase that I heard on Fringe, I heard a Bad Robot, I heard on Zoo, which is let it suck. And it's funny because I always took it, I used to hear people say let it suck, let the idea suck. And I used to think it meant let it marinate a little mm. bit, you know. Right. But no, what it meant was let the idea be a bad idea. Like pitch the bad idea because we're going to come up with the good one maybe from it. Right, right. And so in that sense, you can't really... And also, too, it's, you're, 
in any other job, if someone's not doing their job correctly, you can show them how to do it a different way. With, when you're a writer in a writer's room, your idea came from your head. So mm-hmm. even if it's a crazy idea, it's personal to you. Sure. And you don't want to attack someone personally. You don't want to make them feel like crap, especially young writers. A lot of older writers, more seasoned writers, um, you know, you can, if they pitch a bad idea and someone says, that's not a good idea, you can say, oh yeah, you're right, it's not a good idea. And, and then come up with another one two minutes later. And it just like bounces right off you. But a lot of times, being a low-level writer, and I was like this, I took things personal, you mm-hmm. know? When my idea didn't land, I was like, oh, why didn't they like that, you know? But now I've learned, I think a lot of television writers, you have to learn, it's like, it's not personal. It's just your idea, you know, and come up with another good one in two or three minutes. <laughs> right. You know? Well, and, you know, talking about uh, Breaking Bad, I heard Vince, I've never met Vince, but I've mm. heard Vince Gilligan's the same way. He's very open to ideas. Yeah, and, I've heard him on podcasts. Yeah. And like that, he sounds like the most humble, generous man. It's I like know, it's crazy. Really right? sweet. I mean, like, it would be great to, to work with him at some point. But, yeah. like, that type of writer's room where you are comfortable because your best ideas come from, like, sharing, like, intimate, personal Absolutely. moments. You know, where you could talk about, you know, I don't think I've ever been in a room where, like, people, like, have really, because I'm, like, a genre sci-fi writer, so it's like, <laughs> but then, like, some of the, you know, ABC shows, I'm sure, like, people are sharing some, like, intimate things that happened to them, you know, like, even just, like, Sex in the City, that show existed and was so good because it was so honest. Sure. And it was only honest because, and I don't know this, but I'm assuming that, you know, people were in that room pouring their hearts out about times they were broken up with, you know, or how they feel about a certain thing or just very personal, personal things. And it's good to be in a space where you could say the personal thing and you're not judged for it. Right. And that way you you feel free to say anything. And some of those anything ideas are going to end up as key moments in a television show that millions of people are going to see and they're going to relate to and they're going to, some of them are going to cry. Because it is about, they're, they're crying because they see the honesty in the, 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 the emotional moment that you created that came from your own life. Sure. And that reward is like, there's nothing better. Right. You know? Right. If, you know, I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, and I still do want to be a teacher. What better way to like teach than, you know, tell some good stories, make people feel, and then... You're teaching like four million people, right? Or five million. Hopefully, well, four million is like a low number, <laughs> right, right, but right, like right. I'm saying four because right. Zoo got four million people. Yeah. Hopefully, fifteen million people. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, but you can be like Trey. Um, yeah. You know, which is crazy. He. Trey. Yeah, he is a showrunner who a at night goes to teach pitching 101. I've been a guest in his class before. He's a he's a, a remarkable. No, teacher. he's amazing. Absolutely amazing. You know? I love Trey. But yeah, that's it's crazy. Yeah. You know. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, something that I discovered on your Wikipedia page. Uh, spring Break Zombie Cruise, which is, <laughs> quote, about a government-created virus that infects a group of people on a Spring Break cruise, but it's supposedly 3D. Anyway, I just found that I, I saw that and I thought that was interesting and I wanted to... Well, to, one of the things was, like, I, I wanted to write a zombie movie. Yeah. Because uh, it was hot. I think Walking Dead it was in its first season. And I had... I forget... You know what it was? It was funny. It was, it was, I wanted to come up with a, just a cool, fun title that someone could not look away from. Right. And so, Snakes on a so plane kind of thing. Exactly. Gotcha. I think that was even in my head when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. And so Spring Break Zombie Cruise was clearly one. Yeah, you know I was, what you're getting. You know, and then I was like, 
3D. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, this, this is crazy. Right. And then, you know, I just sat down and I wrote a draft really quick. And it was like, it didn't know what it was. It was because it was... Well, that, what, is, what is really quick? Um, that, one, that one was probably a month. Okay. Three weeks to a month. Um, and I mean, now it's, 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 it's changed. I used to be a very fast writer and now I think I'm a little bit of a slow writer, but I think that's better for me. Sure. You know, um, some people just spit out vomit drafts, um, and then go back and do it. I like to be a little slower. Right. Um, but so I, you know, with Spring Break Zombie Cruise, um, it, it had a little bit of comedy. Like, what does that title mean? Like, that means you're in for a ride. Right, absolutely. So there's, there's got to be, there's got to be, there. there's got to be some comedy. There's got to yeah. be some horror. At the end of the day, I went back and forth with Colbrenner. Uh, we came up with, you know, some good stuff. Um, it went through 12 drafts. I remember 12 drafts, and then it was finally ready to be distributed. Um, which was fun to hear um, your agents and your manager talk about, all right, where's it going? Well, I have good contacts at this place. I have good contacts at this place. They were dividing and conquering, sure. you know, which is one of the things I say to people about the poohoo managers, uh, you know, and just want an agent. Um, you know, it, you what you really want is to have as many resources as possible. And you want someone that is very respected by, you know, so many different companies and, mm -hmm. and people. So that when that manager calls and says, I have something, the company's going to be like, all right, send it over right away. I'll read it because they're a trusted person. Right. Um, and obviously Adam is, is, is that guy. Yeah, I've never, not only have I never heard anyone say anything bad about Adam, but I've never heard anyone not say something good about Adam. Right. I mean, everyone likes Adam. <laughs> he's yeah. great. Yeah, he's, he's great. Fantastic. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm super lucky to, to have him. And it's funny because I remember when I first... Um, so how I got agents and managers, this is a little bit of a segue, but when I was leaving Bad Robot, um, the, the head of um, film over there, Lindsay Weber, Lindsay Paulson at the time, said to me, you've never given me any of your writing. And that was true of me, that my philosophy when I was an assistant was to never ask anyone to read my stuff. Mm. I don't know if that's smart or not, but I always let people know I was a writer. So that... If they were interested, right. they could say, can I read your stuff? Because it's a lot better to have someone ask you to read sure, than absolutely. for you to be like, will you please read my stuff? Right. And putting them in an awkward position. And right. reading a feature script takes two hours. You're asking someone to sacrifice two hours of their time. So, um, and so you know, Lindsay obviously knew that I was a writer. And she, she asked to read my, my stuff. And it was, it was actually the Emerson script that I won an award for. Mm. Um, and she said she 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 really she was very nice about it. She she liked it a lot, and she said, she said we're gonna have a coming out party for you, which meant I'm gonna send this to the agents and managers that I trust, hmm. and hopefully, they'll respond and you can get an agent and manager. And so it was it was great, and I did, and I met with everybody, and it, it was it was awesome. But one of the things that happened was I met with Colbenner, and I was like, I don't need a manager. And I had signed with an agency and I had written a script and I sent it to them and they said, no, we're not sending this out. And they didn't really de delve into why. Mm -hmm. They were very broad notes. And it was in that moment that I was like, I really don't know as much as I maybe think I do. And I need help. And he, Adam was the only manager I had met with. And so I called him back. I'm like, hey, do you remember me? And he was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, you know, I, I, I'm thinking I might need a manager. Um, I'm having some troubles developing some stuff, and I, I think you could help. 
and he was fantastic. He took me back or took me in right away, and we've worked on so many countless projects together. Um, he's great. He's great. So I have I have nothing but good things to say for managers in general, but also Cole Brenner. <laughs> right. Well, specifically in terms of somebody like Cole Brenner, who mm-hmm. because managers will often not always, but often, and they get a bad rap for it sometimes, attaching themselves as producer to different projects. Oh, right, yeah. Um, which I think sometimes it happens because you're a client and mm-hmm. you know maybe they've given you a few notes. But for somebody like Cole Brenner who works on 12 drafts, oh, yeah. I get it. Oh, 100%. I get it. You know, somebody like who's that invested. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, I guess you had only met with one manager, you had said. Yeah. Um, so it's, I guess, my, my question would have been what made you choose Adam over somebody else? But um, I guess I know. But what is it about, I guess, Adam that... Well, it's honestly, it's a, just to, the one thing that's really important, it was advice I got very early on, is never go with the agency, go with the agent. Right. Which is so true. Right. Um, and I've been with my agent now, Adam Byron, for, for years. Um, and he's just, he's a great guy. I, I picked the agency because of him. And you want someone who really likes what you're into. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm, you know, I'm into Ed Burns movies. You know, if I call up right now and say to Adam, I'm, I want to write my version of Ed Burns movie. He's going to say... Well, you know, we're not going to sell this. You right. know, this is not going to make millions or whatever. It's like, but if you're passionate about it, if you want to do it, if you want to write it and direct it yourself and do all this stuff, we'll do it. You know, so he supports you as, as an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's very important about the, the entourage that you keep, whether you have a manager, an agent, or a lawyer. They really should all be um, your biggest fans. Sure. You know, and rather than saying... Well, you know, you want to write this crazy spring break zombie movie? That's right. just not really right. good right now. You know what's selling? You know, you know what's selling? Giant dinosaur movies. Right. One of those. Right, exactly, you know, exactly. You know, I, so, I but they recognize your passion because right. again, if you're going to do 12 drafts, you better like what you're writing. Right. And I I liked it, you know. Yeah. Um had you before that round where you ended up signing with an agent and then with with Cole Brenner, um, had you had other agent manager meetings prior to that? No. That was no. the first go around. First go first around. First rodeo. Gotcha. Because mm-hmm. um, I was going to ask you what, why you didn't get signed or why you didn't sign with somebody before. But if that's not applicable, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll move on to that. Um, so, uh, working with an agent and a manager are very different. Obviously, you've illustrated that point in terms of why you, a manager is, especially for younger writers. I know mm-hmm. John August himself, you know, is, I don't want to say against managers, mm-hmm. but um, he definitely is in the camp of you don't need a manager necessarily. Right. Which for some writers, like obviously when you're John August, you don't. You don't need one. No. But when you're, uh, you know, a lot of, I think, writers do benefit from not just their network, which obviously is sometimes different than your agent so you're mm-hmm. covering more ground so to speak mm-hmm. but like you said their taste and is also a plus because you they can help you develop right. your project give you an outside pair of eyes um and also being a television writer now i've become used to collaboration right i 
love bouncing ideas off people and riffing and I there's nothing worse than me alone in a room <laughs> trying to come up with something right um, I mean and like our going out to dinner with my wife we're like we, we bounce ideas off of each other constantly you know like I just loved that collaboration and TV gives you that and so I've become used to it so applying it to, to film writing now right. I need I need Colburner I need to say, hey man, here's 30 pages. I just give me honest feedback. And his feedback is honest and it's brutal Absolutely. and sometimes it's crippling. Uh, but you just have to keep going because, I mean, if, if you're a working writer, you just that's what you do. Right. Not everyone's going to like what you're doing. You're going to make mistakes, which was another thing that was great about working at Bad Robot and you know, working with JJ. Like, he, you know, he makes mistakes. You know, it was really good to see some of the notes processes of him working with other writers and other producers. And they would, you know, oh, why is this happening? Oh, I, I don't know. And they'd have to work through it. Like right. these, these, these powerhouse writers and directors, they don't always get it right on the first time. Sure. And it's important for young writers or anyone creative to see that and to see upper level people suck <laughs> or make mistakes sure absolutely you know and that way you get comfortable so if i'm gonna make a mistake i'm gonna be like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go fix it right and if it happens gonna... to them if they face whatever issues then absolutely it's okay for me to as well I'm yeah not a failure because of that 100 percent, 100 and also you had mentioned that that having an agent and a manager who you that you connect with that they are your biggest fan yeah. it's also super important oh, because yeah. you have to because sometimes when you do something that does suck and you get those tough notes from a network or wherever to have that fan, to yeah. have that support. Because mm-hmm. um, it's different than your family, you know, your oh, mom 100%. saying, oh, no, it was good, you know, or your friends or whatever. It's somebody mm-hmm. objective that says, Look. Stephen King, because uh, I, I listen to On Writing, mm-hmm. um, his, his memoir on the craft. I listen to it in my car all the time. Like, I, I have it, like, kind of memorized. He talks about having his ideal reader, his IR. Uh, for him, it's his wife. Um, and who is that person that will lead with the good, right? But is very honest afterwards. And it's great, you know, whether it's your wife or it's your manager or it's your agent. Like it, as many ideal readers as you can have, that's what that's when you'll turn out your best material. Sure, you know, because they'll do. Your ego needs a little stroking, you know. It's just like, okay, what I right. love about what you did is this, but you totally bombed in this part. Right, right. You need that. Yeah, I mean, it's like the coaching thing. Where, you know, coaches who are critical of players. I mean, I'm not talking about Bobby Knight throwing chairs kind of thing. Right. Um, but, or, you know, or J.K. Simmons and Whiplash. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about those, those coaches who uh, will be critical. But mm-hmm. they do it because, like, if they didn't think you had more to give or they didn't think you were able to, they wouldn't give you those notes. Right. They'd be like, yeah, that sucked. Sorry. Totally. But you get the notes because it's like, look. You can, this can be better. You can be better. This can work. I want you to succeed. (laughs) Exactly. And so I think if you frame it around that instead of like a personal attack. Correct. You know, but again, the messenger also is is different when it comes from, because Colburn is very diplomatic and he's, he's sharp. Oh yeah. You know, and, uh. And very honest. Very honest. Yeah. But I mean, it comes from a place of respect though. Absolutely. You can totally tell, I'm not a client, but you can totally tell that he respects and right. the best showrunners are like that too. Yeah. And and I, I have to say, like I, I you know, 
joking aside, I've never had a bad showrunner. They've all been super respectful, super talented. I've learned a ton from all of them. I mean, I've worked with some of them multiple times now. You know, Jeff Pinker twice, right. Trey twice. There's a reason, I, and I want to keep working with them over and over right. again. Josh Applebaum being one of the biggest on Zoo. Zoo was one of the best writing experiences I have ever had. Wow, that's fantastic. Because um, he, everyone in that room loved what they were doing. Like, we, we recognize that it is a crazy show about animals and the animal apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So why not have some fun with it? Sure. You know, and it, we never took ourselves too seriously. We loved the material and we pitched wild ideas and, and you know, we got excited. I mean, that's the biggest thing is you want to get excited by ideas. Uh, and there were so many times in that writer's room where we, we got giddy over like insane things that could happen. Oh wait, we had like our um, uh, head on a turtle moment many a time where it's like, okay, that idea you just pitched is crazy, but like, let's think about it for a second. Mm-hmm. Can we do this? And we did it a couple times and we had a, we had a blast doing it. And one of the things that Josh does that a lot of showrunners do, um, is they, they do listen to their writers. Um, not every idea has to come from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, you know, Josh would be like, all right, guys, just hit me, hit me, just all ideas. And we, we would just pitch crazy ideas and he would say, he would just marinate in that and he would be like, okay, these are the ones I'm responding to. Let's talk about them. And it was great. It was awesome. I did, I, we co-wrote on that show. Um, I did two with wonderful writer Melissa Glenn and two with an awful writer Jay Ferber. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, who's going to throw into the bus here? No, <laughs> no. Yeah. it was, uh, oh my God, I love him. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was, the co-writing was so fun. And that show needed to co-write because Josh wanted us to also split time in the room. Mm. So we would be right in the morning and be in the afternoon or, or whatever. And again, like I said, I love the collaboration process. Uh, it's so fun to co-write with someone. Um, and, and especially when you get to a point, like with both those writers I named, I would pitch something and, and there would literally be a, no, <laughs> no. And we were so comfortable with each other that right. you could say no right, and not even need to say why. Right, it's like, right. okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah, that wasn't yeah, a good yeah. idea. Um, and that's what you want in any room is just to be comfortable enough to generate material. And had you worked with Jay or that other writer before? Yeah, actually, yeah, Melissa I worked with on Revolution. Okay. Uh, she was on Revolution. Uh, we worked on a script together. We were up like till five in the morning once. Uh, you know, when, you, when you're in the trenches with someone, like, right. it's, like it's like fraternities, like you, you bond over stuff. So uh, it's very talented. And Jay I'd never worked with before, but, you know, hopefully work, work with each other again. Right, mm-hmm. right. Now, you had written, just, just a side note, you had written the uh, comic book adaptation of Fringe. Oh, yeah. Um, Jay's obviously mm-hmm. a big comic writer. Was, was that before or after? Like, had you met Jay? I had known, it's funny, because I had known of Jay because yeah. one of my close friends is, his favorite comic is Copperhead. Okay. So he knew of this, this cool writer. Right. And then when I went on Zoo, I knew Jay was a comic book writer. And um, I'm not a huge comic book fan. Um, I, I do, I read... I'm like a bandwagon. Like sure. I hear that Saga's awesome. Right. So I pick up five volumes right. of Saga and I plow through it because it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't, I don't go to the shop every Wednesday. Gotcha. Um, uh, and it was just good to, you know, and so Jay gave me a bunch of his comics I asked for. I wanted to read them. And they're awesome. And Copperhead is, I can't wait till he keeps going with it whenever, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, whenever he gets around to it. Yeah, but comic book writing was a lot of fun. The Fringe comic was great. So you had rewrote the comic without ever having... Yeah, we, it was one of those things on, on you know, 
Bad Robot is big in viral marketing. And one of the things with Fringe was let's do a comic book tie-in. And so season one was the, the two staff writers on Fringe that season kind of ran a writer's room with the assistants. And I was an assistant. And we brainstormed some cool ideas for the comic book. What was more fun was season two um, when it was basically, these are stories from the fringe, Mm -hmm. which means if you have a twilight zone, you can just do your version of a twilight zone. And I had had this idea kicking around in my head for years that I wanted to do as a movie and I just could never crack it. And then I was looking at, you know what? This might be a good 10 page comic. Right. And it was this, it was this fun thing. And then I, you know, wrote the, you know, wrote it and it was, you know, worked with an artist and it came out. And it's one of my favorite things I've ever written. You know, I, I don't, not a lot of people have read it, but you know, cause it's the fringe comic, but it was, a, it was a lot of fun and you could just do whatever you wanted. Right. So, and it was, it was for the assistants. So any assistant that was working, writer's assistant or the showrunner's assistant who, had, cool. who had a Twilight Zoney idea, yeah. just put it on paper and someone's going to draw it. And it was just, it was such a great, great thing. Um, they, the Fringe especially used assistants very well um, and made sure that everyone was constantly creating right. ideas. And it like, it becomes, uh, you know, it, um, like infectious, you know, that kind of creative energy yeah no that's fantastic mm. I've, I've never heard a story like that you know obviously <laughs> you know like you were talking about the trajectory is mm. get an assistant you know like a writer's pa or something or even just you know production office pa right try to get your way, way up to showrunner's assistant or writer uh, writer's assistant but yeah i've never heard of like okay we're all making a comic all the assistants chip in ideas kind of thing that's, it was it was really it was, re- it was really fun that's pretty fantastic yeah. and like you said it comes from the top down so that's, yeah that's great to hear um I know you have a Bad Robot reunion going on very soon. <laughs> um, I do have more questions, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. Yeah, go ahead. Um, but I do want to ask you, uh, we always have this section uh, called Reading, Watching, Playing, and Listening to. Mm-hmm. So I want to find out what you're reading, what okay. you're watching, what you're playing, if you play any games. Now games have stories and they're in the WGA right. kind of thing. Uh, and listening to. Do you listen mm-hmm. to music? Yeah, no, I'm I'm a big music listener. Um, every morning now, we're listening to Disney music. Um, nice. nice. <laughs> we're, there's a lot of we just watched the well, my wife and I watched the Jungle Book, so we've been listening, okay. and we showed our son uh, some little music clips from the Jungle Book. So we, we're listening to like the Bare Necessities and <laughs> right. I Want to Walk Like You. I listen to I listen to music every day when I write, and I have the certain playlists. Like I know. The social network is that you have to get this done fast soundtrack. Okay. Um, so I listen to the social network almost at the beginning of every day when I write. Oh. Um, and it, for some reason, it just it just works for me. Um, other ones are The Town and uh, Gone Baby Gone. So Affleck's two movies. Right. Um, that you know I've obviously love Ben Affleck, but I love his movies and the score. There's even Argo. Um, I don't love the whole soundtrack, but there's a song at the end called Cleared Iranian Airspace. It's the ending. <laughs> and I listen to that. I mean, I'll listen to it on repeat. And right. I'm a creature of habit. Like, I'll listen to the same song over and over again for days. Right. Um, especially if I'm writing. Well, because then it starts to blend in, too. It becomes background noise almost. Totally. Yeah, and they, and like nowadays, there's, there's, there's bands there that just do trailer music. Like Audio Machine is, really? is one. Oh. And so they have two songs that were on the Fighter trailer. Um, that I listen to all the time. Um, and yeah, so I, I do listen to a fair amount of that. And then, 
you know, some of the playlists that are on Apple Music now, like 90s one hit wonders. Right. Uh, we listen to that a lot. Or like 80s movie songs. Right. So like all of a sudden when like Axel F kicks in <laughs> right. um, or St. Elmo's <laughs> Fire, it's like for some reason the music, you know, 80s music in, in the movies, it just makes you smile. I don't right. know what it is. There's something like if you're in a bad mood, go listen to that song that's at the end of Mannequin, which is like <laughs> we can build this Jefferson Starship or right, whatever. Right, right, right. Like listen to that and try not to smile. I don't know. There's just something that is fun about it. That, that I love. So that's kind of what I'm listening to. Because it wasn't orchestral. They were actual pop songs. Oh, yeah. Written for movies. And totally. I remember the first Batman movie, the Michael Keaton one. Prince. Had like, yeah, all this print. Oh, was, the whole album was, was Prince. It was great. Yeah, but then they stopped <laughs> doing that for some reason. I, we, you know, everything's cyclical. So we got to yeah. bring it back. <laughs> Absolutely. The same thing with TV shows. Yeah. Although I guess the credit sequences have kind of shrunk. Well, I love, yeah. I, I, I am sad but. that they've got away from opening credit music and stuff like that. Yeah. Because I love... I mean, the OC, I love the OC more than anything. So I'll listen to that Phantom Planet song all the time. Right. I even love 90210. It's like, da na 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 Yeah, right. Like, I love that. Or, you know, obviously the Dawson's Creek. Uh, and then Lost is just that. Wah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I love all that, that music. Hopefully we can bring opening credits. Right. Music back. Um, and then reading. You know, I haven't read a book in a while. Actually, no, I'm lying. Um, I have the... I got Stephen Bochco's uh, autobiography okay. a couple weeks ago, and I don't know anything about him other than I used to pass him working on Lantana, but I know he's this big producer, sure. writer-producer, and I don't know much about the 70s and the 80s of television. I know Jay, Jay is like yeah. an aficionado, um, but like I know that Hill Street Blues, everyone that I respect talks about Hill Street Blues as this like pinnacle, this show that like really redefined things because... It was it was not a procedural. It was a procedural, and it was serialized. Right. And it was an ensemble cast, and it was just really. And I happen to be on shows a lot with ensemble casts, so I've never seen it. But I'm reading it now. I'm like I'm like oh my god, I have to watch Hill Street Blues. Right. Like I remember the theme song. Like I remember my parents with the piano. It was like this very like started off actiony, and then this sweet piano. Right. Dun, 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 you know, like and so I'm I want to convince my wife like we got to go through seven seasons <laughs> of Hill Street Blues. It might be a little dated, but right. I'm sure we'll enjoy it. Right. 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 <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm actually reading that book now and then, uh, yeah, cause reading else is, is tough. And then, you know, Brian K. Vaughn's, like I said, like I'm still reading Saga. Saga. He's got the paper girls. That's, that's good. There's this comic, uh, called Birthright that I'm, I'm reading. That's, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. And then watching, um, we just finished the night of Stranger Things blew me away. Right. Um, I love Stranger Things. Um, we, you know, my wife and I, we watched like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. <laughs> Something like really, you, need to get, you know, get away from. You know, and, and I love it. Yeah. And then like, um, you know, we watch a lot of the Survivor, you know, we love. But we're really looking forward to Game of Thrones coming back oh, and whenever, yeah. whenever that does. Um, is it six or seven? Because they're only supposed to what? Seven? Seven? There's the not a time? lot. There's not a lot left. Yeah. Uh, which is sad. But I mean, for a sh- that show just keeps getting better and better. I mean, even amazing. Sopranos, it, it, was, it was amazing. The whole thing was amazing. But you know, college in Pine Barrens was a lot better than the season with Ralphie. Right. You know, like right. it, it started to lose a little bit. Mad Men the same way. I'm a big Mad Men fan. My wife and I still go back and watch The Suitcase because that episode of television is like, there's nothing better. Um, and, um, but for Game of Thrones, like they just keep getting better. It's like mm-hmm. them and Breaking Bad, like over and over again, they just top themselves. It's like, it's just amazing. Right. I mean, how do you not especially being in this business, how do I not watch that and just try to study and understand how the hell they do it? 
You know, it, it, there's got to be some, the, the, someone's got a magic lamp somewhere. <laughs> right. Right. Especially now that they're technically off book. Right. Know, oh, yeah. Ahead of the no. Books, and and so. that was, I was doubtful this season, just in the sense that like, oh, well, I wonder what they're going to come up with. Not right. doubtful. I should just say like curious. Sure. And oh my God, what they did is amazing. Yeah. I mean, they're just they're very talented writers. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then playing, do you, I'm, I, I'm not, a, I'm not really a gamer. Yeah. Yeah. The last game I, I used to play N64 Bond. <laughs> um, and I loved it. it used to, I used to get motion sickness playing it, but I loved it anyway. Uh, right. That was the last time I really played a game. I, I, again, it's like the Facebook, uh, to be honest. If, sure. if I have a game console, I will use that. Right. And I will not write. I will not read. I also, you know, I play the piano. I'm into photography. Right. Like, I have, like, these, these hobbies that I, I have hard enough time keeping up with. Um, and so I'd rather just do that than play. Although, you know, my kids are going to grow up and they're going to be teenagers at some point when I blink. And I'm sure there's going to be multiple consoles. So Plus, someone's going to come to you and say, you know, uh, uh, the, I get the exact title. Spring Break Zombie <laughs> We want to make the VR game of it. Yeah. We need a script. Oh, my God. So then it's I'm like, there. yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where... I use The Last of Us as an example quite frequently because mm-hmm. it's, you know... Yeah, I've heard about it, yeah. Yeah, it was nominated for WGA Awards mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think it won, actually. It did. Um, and being translated into a feature, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's the kind of thing where there's... A lot of games have great story nowadays. And yeah. it's becoming a profession for writers. Yeah. Um, so I, I always like to ask, because I know some writers are totally into it, some... At know, some point, I, I would love to... You know. I, it, I would love to do it. I'd love to write. I just don't play it that much yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. that's cool um, and lastly do you have any sort of advice for aspiring screenwriters TV writers out there or is there anything else that you wanted to sort of share um, you know some of the, the the best advice I ever got early on um, there was this you know in Boston there's no there's no screenwriters <laughs> um, well, at least they, I didn't know them growing sure. up my dad runs a restaurant in Quincy and he had met this guy his name is Marty Nadler he's a comedy writer worked for Gary Marshall and my dad, being like a researcher or whatever, said, will you call my son? Could you talk to him? He's really into this thing that I don't understand and mm-hmm. I want him to have advice on stuff. And so this guy called me and he's, Marty Nadler is very nice. And he said, you have to write every day and you have to be able to write every, anywhere. Um, so that whole novel waiting for inspiration is just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm a big fan of that Malcolm Gladwell, you're, you're 10,000 hours. Um, you have to do it. So if you write every day, even if it's bad, you are working, you're getting your 10,000 hours in so that at some point, um, Ira Glass has that thing where it's like your taste. Sometimes it's, you have good taste. You started this because you have good taste. Right. But your, your craft needs to catch up to your taste and that does take time and it does take energy and it takes a lot of work and a lot of failures. And you just have to keep going and you have to keep doing it because eventually... I think it mapped it out. Like, I think by the time I'm 42, that's when I finish my 10,000 hours. So I'm going to be really good when I'm 42. Right now, I'm still, you know, in in class. That's when you're writing The Schindler's 2. Yeah, (laughs) right. Or Titanic 2. Right. When they colonize the underwater city. Right. Um, You know, it's, I think at some point, um, you know, you really just need to be able to do it anywhere. You need to be not just a coffee shop, but if you're writing in the car, um, on set, in your office, and you have to write every day. Right. It like not just think, because anyone can think. Sure. Absolutely. You really need to be in front of a computer, just writing down. It doesn't need to be scenes. Right. It could be log lines. It could be outline. It could be anything. It could be prose. You know, nowadays right. people get jobs off of short stories, plays. Playwrights are huge. Playwrights get more jobs than you know in television than right. actual television writers, and there's a reason for it. They they, they have a, they have a 
particular craft, a skill. They're very good at peeling back that onion on character. Right. Um, um, and you know HBO has a lot of playwrights, and there's a reason Absolutely. that HBO is the best network for right. for television. For and a lot of showrunners, you know, hire playwrights with no sort of TV sort of experience. Totally, they hire playwrights they, because you know what they have a superpower in the room. And when you're building your Voltron of a room, that playwright over there is going to nail character every time. Absolutely, and, and, and as well as many other things, you know. But um, so you want that person who's going to say, oh, you know, let's give him a, let's give him a puppy. Okay, well, let's talk about that puppy for a right, second. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, and in, in really elaborate on the character. Uh, playwrights are great for that. Right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, well, we can probably talk at another time, but, you know, in terms <laughs> of, like, assembling a room, it's, mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot of different, it's, it's best when you have a lot of different voices and a lot of different 100%. points of view, a lot of different skill sets and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. Thank you so much for coming on. And, and Thank chatting. you for having yeah, me. I've, I've been listening to this podcast. Awesome for a long time and it's like an honor to, to finally be a, a part of it and uh, I'm happy to talk at, at any point. It's it's seriously like six degrees of Matt Pitts. Like everyone you know, we pretty much we worked our way around the circle to get to you. That's what <laughs> that's, the whole thing has been that's about. That's so funny, that's so um, funny. So uh, be sure to check out, uh, we've got your 20 questions up online, mm-hmm. you can find out more about you and for more great interviews and resources in the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much, Kevin. And thank you for listening.